This is Molly Hemingway of The Federalist. Join me, my husband Mark of Real Clear Investigations, Kyle Mann of the Babylon Bee, San Francisco Archbishop Salvatore Cordelioni, Lutheran Church Missouri Synod President Matt Harrison, and others for the 2023 Making the Case Conference, Friday, June 16th, and Saturday, June 17th at Concordia University, Chicago. Learn more at issuesetc.org. Making the Case, June 16th and 17th in Chicago. Issuesetc.org. How are we to rightly understand the fifth commandment? It seems simple at first. You shall not kill. But then we have, well, obvious should we call them exceptions or should we call them a different application of this commandment? Say a police officer, he's trying to defend maybe uh, someone from a home invasion or a break-in and he has to use lethal force or he's being attacked himself and he uses lethal force. These are not controversial things, but why can he do it? And I can't. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Joining us to talk about lawful lethal force in the Fifth Commandment, Dr. Joel Bierman. He's professor of systematic theology at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, author of an essay in Luther's Large Catechism with Annotations and Contemporary Applications. It's titled, The Fifth Commandment, Lawful Lethal Force. Dr. Bierman, welcome back. Always good to be here, Todd. Why does Martin Luther assert, really from the very outset, when he writes about this, two exceptions to the fifth commandment, you shall not kill. Well, Luther's being a good Lutheran, and that means he's going to follow Scripture. And so that means he bases his teaching on what is actually given us in Scripture, what the church has taught about these things. And the church is always quite clear. He's not making this stuff up. It's not a uniquely Lutheran view, but it's, he's quite clear on this, that there are two exceptions to the commandment, thou shalt not kill. And the first exception is God himself, who is above any law and who is free to do as he needs to do according to his divine justice. And then the other exception, which is the more interesting one for us, would be the exception of government. And he's basing that, of course, on Romans 13, where you have Paul's rather famous or infamous, depending on how you see it, command that we are to be obedient to the authority and that the authority is not given the sword in vain. So in other words, that the government has the authority to take life. And in Roman world, the sword meant capital punishment. Where did Luther find these exceptions in Scripture? Well, I already mentioned the whole idea of the Romans 13. That's clear, very, very explicit that Paul is saying that the government, the prince, the emperor in his case, who happened to be Nero, he has the authority to use the sword according to God's plan and will. And that's why Paul can even use the rather astounding phrase and say that the prince is actually God's minister to do his purpose. So the prince is there at God's will and direction. And then the whole idea of God being sovereign, you can just look all over the Bible for that. God is absolutely the one who is sovereign. He is the one who chooses to give life, take life. That's all through scripture. Did Luther see government as a necessary evil after the fall? I would say no. And this gets to be a big debate. And it, you, you, it's not simply answered, but you get into the question of when did government come into existence? And there's one view that would say, well, before the fall, everything was perfect. So we didn't need government. We didn't need 
the sword. We didn't need authority, which is true. There's no need for a sword. There's no need for judgment. There's no need for condemnation. And yet there is the reality that people are living together in community and there is a certain structure. So I would contend when we, this is all conjecture, but I would contend that even before the fall, God is already establishing, and this part's not conjecture, even before the fall, God is already establishing an order or an arrangement of things that Adam is there to have dominion over the creation and Eve is created to assist him and to be his etzer, his helper in that task. So there's already a structure that God has in mind for how things are supposed to work. My contention is, and I would say Luther would support me in this at times, that the government existed because it grew out of that fundamental relationship of husband and wife. And Luther absolutely does this with the fourth commandment. And so I would contend that government is simply a way of organizing things so that they work well and honor God. So it doesn't have to be inherently negative. The sword comes in after the fall. What was Luther's understanding of the three estates and how does it fit into a scriptural understanding of God's two realms, the church and civil society? Yeah, these are two very important ideas, kind of paradigmatic ideas that shape a lot of Luther's understanding about the world around and about, therefore, social things and political things. I've heard people sometimes almost pit these against each other as if they're contradictory, but I don't see any contradiction between them whatsoever. Both of these ideas were things that were sort of already in the air, especially the estates. Luther did not coin that. The idea of the three estates, the estate of home, the family, the estate of the government or the state, the world around, the government, the civil structures, and then the church. These are the three estates. Those have been in place well before Luther. The emphasis on the two realms, the temporal realm and the spiritual realm, as Luther likes to divide them, those were things that Luther developed more thoroughly himself. He really started to press on this idea of God's way of working in the world in these two distinct areas, in the spiritual realm and the temporal realm. So I would say that they work together rather nicely. The spiritual realm is thinking about how how a man lives rightly related to God. And the spiritual realm is interested in God's work of restoring and bringing the creation back into a right relationship with the creator. This is the work that, of course, is done through Christ. The second article of the creed celebrates this and teaches it very clearly. And so the church, then, is the institution that God has established in the world. So it's a material creation thing in the world, but it's there for the sake of the spiritual realm. It's there for the sake of the proclamation of the gospel. Whereas the family and the state are both much more interested in the functioning of our lives in this world. So family and marriage is all about living as creatures, rightly related to other creatures, taking care of the creation, serving one another, serving the creatures. And then the state is there to make sure that those things are going well. There's not a conflict between the three estates and the two realms. They actually kind of integrate, I think, rather nicely together. In Luther's terms, what is the prince's unique vocation vis-a-vis the fifth commandment? Yeah, so the fifth commandment says, thou shalt not kill. So the prince's first responsibility, I would say, is to make sure that this commandment is being upheld. And so if you have somebody in his domain who kills, then the prince would say, this is wrong, you must not do that. And so he would be establishing laws to forbid murder, forbid any taking of life. And if somebody does disobey this, then he would move to punish, whether that would be an imprisonment or with the death penalty itself, which would actually 
completely be in line with God's purposes. This is clear all through scripture that capital punishment is not inherently somehow against God's purposes. In a broken world where people violate God's will and kill, then taking a life as the retribution, which is a fine word, and even as the example or to discourage others following in like manner, that's all appropriate for a prince as he deems fit. So you can't say that, well, no, God has ruled out capital punishment for everybody. No, the whole point of the exception is that the government has the ability to take life. So that's the first application of the fifth commandment. Then we go to a much wider, more dramatic instance would be the whole idea of warfare. Conducting war is taking life. That's what you're doing. As people like to famously say, you break things and kill people. That's what wars do. That's what armies do. And does a prince have the responsibility, right, prerogative to do that? And the answer is absolutely. The Augsburg Confession, Article 16, is explicit on this, that government has the right, the privilege, I would argue even the responsibility to wage just war when necessary. And that same government has the right, privilege, and I would say responsibility to punish wrongdoers when they violate the Fifth Commandment. Apart from the Christian prince, where is the Christian called to bear the sword? Well, that's where things get a little more interesting. So the individual Christian, as Christian, I would say, bears the sword never on his own authority or never in his own person, but he does it at the behest of the prince. He does it at the behest of the one who has been given that authority. It surprises a lot of American Christians especially, but Luther was really into these ideas of authority. The German word is Amt. And for Luther, if you've got the Amt, that means God has given you the authority and the responsibility to do something. If God has not given you the Amt, it's not your business. And so Luther's very clear on this. We're more familiar with it this way. To whom has he given the Amt to preach? That's the pastor. So who preaches? Pastors only. And Luther one time even comically says that Jesus, well, I think it's kind of comical, but perhaps others wouldn't, but Jesus commands that the demoniac should be silent. And he silences the demons who are proclaiming him to be the son of God. And Luther argues, well, why did Jesus tell the demons to be silent? Well, because they did not have an omt to preach. He is insisting that they must be silenced because they're not authorized to preach. And to me, that illustrates how seriously Luther took this. So the prince has the omt to use the sword, so he must. So then the question is, does the individual Christian have that omt? And ordinarily we would say, no, that's the responsibility of the prince to do this. Now, things get interesting where you could say, but if my neighbor is in need and I, as his neighbor, see him in need and I need to intervene to help him, I need to do that. And if his need is to be protected from somebody who is trying to kill him, should I intervene and try to stop that from happening? And the answer would be yes. And so the individual Christian would have the sword in the sense of caring for the neighbor, but it would be in a, almost in a derivative way that he's acting almost in the stead of the prince at that time. But the bigger point really is not so much delineating the lines of responsibility or who has rights, but it's really a simply a matter of doing your vocation well. And if my neighbor needs me to intervene with force, I'll do that for the sake of my neighbor. So the illustration that I often fall back on is that of the police officer with regard to the eighth commandment, that is to put the best construction on things. His office or his vocation requires him to technically violate that. He cannot assume the best about someone he pulls over for, say, reckless driving. He needs right. to assume the worst about them 
for his own safety and for the safety of the public. Are these exceptions similar to that? I think that's on the right track, exactly. So in the carrying out of your vocation, you sometimes have to do what the neighbor needs to be done. It's not so much even maybe an exception as it is understanding that you're living in two realities. And this is what Luther is just brilliant at. He does this throughout his career. He does it in Temporal Authority, Can Soldiers To Be Saved? He does it in his commentary on Psalm 82. He does this again and again and again. He follows this really delicate path between what I do in myself as a Christian and what I do as a Christian in my vocations for the sake of the other. And he's absolutely unrelenting on this, that as a Christian in my own person, I do not ever violate the other. I don't ever make any exceptions for anything. I always put the best construction. I always turn the other cheek. I always go the extra mile. That's what I do as a Christian. And yet in my office, in my vocations, whatever that might be, and a police officer or a soldier, his vocation is very clear. You're an extension of the government. You're an extension of the prince. Use the sword as the prince directs. So therefore he uses the sword. And so Luther can say and be absolutely dead serious that the Christian can be a peaceful person who turns the other cheek even as he is using lethal force to stop an enemy of the state. And he can be doing both at the same time. This is, I would argue, kind of the brilliance of Luther as he works through this reality in a scriptural way following the teaching of the church, but in a way that quite frankly, absolutely confounds Christians outside of our Lutheran circles. Anabaptists go nuts over this. And just about every other denomination just can't get this. They see us as a singular unity. The, the idea that we are existing in these two realities where we are able to do our vocation for the sake of the world and then actually use lethal force. And as Luther would even say, if you need a hangman and no one's around to do it, Christian can go do that. How we can do that, and yet at the same time, be a person who turns to the cheek and doesn't stand on our own rights. And that's the challenge of the Christian, is living in both of those realities and not falling one side or the other in a reckless way that we don't actually pay attention to the inherent tension that that creates for us. Dr. Joel Beerman is our guest. We're talking about lethal force in the Fifth Commandment. We'll go into a little more detail on how other streams of the Reformation struggle to resolve this apparent contradiction. Next. Speaking the truth to power, the Lutheran option, cancel culture, media bias, a dying man's consolation. Some of your favorite guests will address these topics at the 2023 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference, Friday, June 16th and Saturday, June 17th at Concordia University, Chicago. Learn more at issuesetc.org. Making the Case June 16th and 17th in River Forest, Illinois. Your lifeline to the Lutheran worldview. You're listening to Issues Etc. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial a podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. 
Save the date. The 2023 Lutherans for Life National Conference is October 11th through 13th at the Holiday Inn Cincinnati Airport in Erlanger, Kentucky, with visits to the Ark Encounter and Creation Museum. Look for more information in early 2023 at lutheransforlife.org conference. Lutherans for Life, equipping Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel-motivated voices for life. lutheransforlife.org. Thanks to Mike and Lynn in Altamont, Illinois, Jim in Dearborn, Michigan, Greg in St. Clair Shores, Michigan, Chris in Chicago, Eric and Susan in Plainfield, Illinois, and Stephen and James in Otisville, Michigan for registering today for the 2023 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference, the premier conference for Christian laity. It's Friday, June 16th and Saturday, June 17th at Concordia University, Chicago. Making the Case is your opportunity to meet more than 500 Lutherans from around the world and our speakers, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, President Matt Harrison, journalist Mark and Molly Hemingway, Pastor Peter Bender of the Concordia Catechetical Academy, Kyle Mann of the Babylon Bee and San Francisco Archbishop, Salvatore Cordelione. Find out more and register at issuesetc.org or by giving us a call 618-223-8385, making the case June 16th and 17th in River Forest, Illinois. We're talking about lethal force in the Fifth Commandment. Dr. Joel Bierman is our guest. So go into a little more detail about what you were mentioning before the break, how other streams of the Reformation struggled to resolve the apparent contradiction between this use of force in one's vocation and Jesus' injunctions not to seek vengeance, to sacrifice, and to turn the other cheek. Yeah. See, this is what this is really coming down to. It's it's an issue of what do you do with the uh, commandments in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is saying these really hard, almost outrageous things to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile, to if somebody sues you to take your cloak, give them your tunic as well. You know, this is crazy stuff. And we're not taught to operate this way in any sense of the world around us. And yet this is what Luther expects of Christians. And so the question is, is he serious or not? So Rome handled it this way. Rome said, yeah, Jesus is serious, but that's not for the average guy. The average guy just needs to keep the Ten Commandments, and that's enough. These commandments in the Sermon on the Mount, this is extra stuff. This is extra difficult stuff. These are works of super arrogation. These are works above and beyond. You can't expect the average Joe guy to do this, but monks and priests, yes. You have to make a vow of non violence and of non-retaliation, a vow of poverty, those apply to you, but not to everybody else. So that's how Rome gets around it. Rome says, yep, that Sermon on the Mount stuff is really hard. So hard, in fact, don't you don't need to worry about it. Luther said, no, that's not right. The Sermon on the Mount applies to every follower of Christ. This is God's will for his people. So it does apply. So then you get the people who say, well, yeah, of course it applies. And this is be the Anabaptist tradition present today, especially among Amish and Mennonites and others who are really sympathetic to this kind of view. And the Anabaptist position would say, no, the Christian must be Christian all the way down, always. And so the Christian can never take up the sword. And so the idea of a Christian soldier is completely ruled out. The idea of a Christian policeman completely ruled out. Even the question uh, is very valid for a lot of them is, should Christians even be involved in politics because you're inherently doing violent things with a sword? And so that would be the Anabaptist tradition. And for them, it's a consistent all the way down. You must always turn the other cheek. 
And Luther, in a sense, defies both of these. He says, no, Rome's not right. It does apply to the Christian, but the Mennonites are wrong because they don't recognize that we still have an obligation in our vocations to serve our neighbor. And that obligation to serve our neighbor, that vocation puts a demand on us that sometimes actually requires me to use the sword for the sake of God's justice, for the sake of the other. Not ever in defense of myself, not ever to preserve my own life, but simply to preserve the lives of others. That's really what's driving Luther. And he's, I would argue, very consistent on that. And it sounds kind of strange because we think, well, how do you parse that out? But that's exactly what he's going for. So what I find really quite marvelous about Luther is he does not diminish the expectation of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, no, that's absolutely God's will. And that does apply to every single Christian. Is that hard? Oh, yeah. That's really hard, and we need to be dead serious about doing it. We can't simply hide underneath, well, wait a minute, I have a right to self-defense because the government gave that to me. I think Luther would say, no, you have a higher obligation, which is to follow Christ, which means you do turn the other cheek. The thing that gets interesting, of course, is what happens when my vocation to serve the neighbor and stop evil seems to run counter with I turn the other cheek, and that's where things get quite interesting and where Christians are going to not always see it the same way. So one of the places your essay has come in for some online criticism is where you say that the legitimate place for the use of the sword, and I'm quoting, does not provide a scriptural foundation for the right to bear arms. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So what I mean by that is kind of what it's, I'm getting at right there is that when you have the legitimate use of the sword, that's given to the prince, not to the average citizen. The idea that I have a right to bear arms, that's a constitutional right. And that's what I'm getting at in the footnote. So the Second Amendment of the United States Constitution has given you the right to bear arms. Okay, that's great. The government has given this right to me. But the notion that somehow, well, this is a right inherent in the Bible or in my human dignity, I would push hard back against that and say, show me. Show me where that right is established in Scripture. The whole notion of rights, I contend, are really growing up out of a different stream of thought, which have greater influence by Enlightenment thinking on the lines of Rousseau and Locke and Jefferson than they do a Christian way of thinking about things. And Luther, to the chagrin of a lot of us, is much more serious about, no, 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 you need to turn the other cheek and you need to be faithful in what God has called you to do. So what I'm getting at is I would say that if I'm going to claim a right to bear arms, that doesn't grow out of the prince having the sword. I can't say, yep, I've got the sword too. No, you really don't. You're a father, you're a citizen, you have other vocations and other responsibilities and tasks that go with that. But the sword belongs to the prince. He's the one who has that authority. Now, this gets really sensitive to us, especially in our American context, because we love our rights, we love our freedom, we love the sense of standing up against tyranny and fighting against what's evil. But my simple contention is, if you really follow the New Testament teaching, you follow Christ's teaching on this, and if you really follow Luther on this, you're going to find yourself having to rethink some of this and be a little bit challenged by how adamant can I be in my right to bear the sword or to use lethal force. So in the conduct of my vocation to protect others and to care for others, yes, you can argue there's a place when sometimes I have to intervene for the sake of the other to stop the evil from happening. But I think the question still remains a live open question. Does that amount to, do I need to use lethal force? Am I justified in that? The state might say I'm justified and the state might say no problem, but I think the Christians should be operating with a different set of rules besides just what the constitution allows or doesn't allow. You're making a pretty narrow argument here where you're saying, the U.S. Constitution does enumerate 
the right to bear arms. But for the Christian, you cannot ground that in some teaching of Scripture. It's simply absent the evidence there. That's exactly what I'm saying. So how should Christians view then the Second Amendment in light of the Fifth Commandment? Yeah, I think they should view the Second Amendment like they do most of the other rights that they have been granted by the state. I have a right to worship. I have a right to assemble. I have a right to free speech. I have a right to bear arms. Okay, so I'm a citizen of the United States, and God has seen fit to allow my government to give me these rights and these things I can use in the conduct of my vocation. All right, that's great. I'll use those. But those things aren't defining me, and those things aren't somehow the things that are the most important to me. The most important thing is knowing Christ, obeying him, following his will. And so I can avail myself of those rights and use them as appropriate, but it, even as a Christian, I might not necessarily use all the things I have available to me. You know, I maybe have a right to go to court to claim my property. So somebody's been mowing part of my lawn, and he's now going to court to claim what's my property. And I could go to court and defend my rights and say, this is the way it works, or I could say, you know what? If I get sued, I'm supposed to give up my tunic. Why not? I'll just let it go. So the Christian can choose to say, you know, it doesn't matter that much. This is material stuff. Who cares? I'm going to give a witness to something greater. That's more important to me. So I'm just contending. I think Christians need to think a little harder about the witness they're providing to the world and what we're actually saying and doing by the choices we make about which rights we're going to use or what actions we're going to follow. Are we really advancing the Christian proclamation? Are we really promoting the gospel? Or does it amount to we're kind of defending ourselves? So to me, that kind of comes back to 1 Corinthians 6, where the apostle asks a series of rhetorical questions that really just kind of run against the grain of our American sensibilities. He's talking about the court situation. He says, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor the drunkards and the slanders or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It's a pretty stern warning about not seeking retribution. It sure is. It sure is. And I'm so glad you brought that up because he, this, is, this is utterly consistent with everything I see going on through the New Testament. Jesus lays down for us a really hard way of life. Let's just be honest and blunt about this. This is not easy. It's not easy to go through life turning to the cheek, going the extra mile. Because keep in mind, going the extra mile is a very concrete thing. The Roman government had the authority to force you to go one mile carrying a soldier's pack. They could make you do that. Jesus says, okay, if you get forced to go one mile, volunteer an extra free one. That's not so. And that's just crazy. This is the hated Romans forcing you to do this detestable thing, carrying his pack for a mile. You're going to volunteer to go another mile. It's beyond absurd. And that's what Jesus teaches. And so then you have this kind of going on. And then you have Paul saying the same kind of thing. If you get taken into court, why not just be wronged? Why are you so worried about your stuff? It's exactly consistent with this. And what I would argue is this is the core of this fundamental call that Christ gives to us. He says, take up your cross and follow me. In other words, die. You must die to yourself. Dying to yourself is hard. It is hard, but it takes, it manifests itself not in, oh yes, I have an attitude that I'm not the most important thing. Show me. And this is where James kicks in. Show me. You show it by not demanding your rights. You show it by turning the cheeks. You show it by going the extra mile. It demands action. And it's hard. I'll be the first to admit this is hard. And I don't like it any more than anyone else does. But I'm convinced, absolutely convinced, this is the way that Christ calls us to live. And I'm convinced that this is exactly what Luther's upholding as well. 
How would you summarize all of this with about a minute? How did Luther understand the individual's use of lethal force in light of Scripture? I would say that Luther would argue that the individual, by and large, should not be using lethal force or looking for opportunities to do so. This belongs to the prince to do that. If the individual has to intervene in some kind of exceptional, strange situation to protect a neighbor and ends up causing a death of somebody, that would be unfortunate, but that could be seen as, I'm doing this for the sake of the neighbor. But the lethal force is never used for the sake of self. And if it is for the sake of self in some sort of convoluted thing that I'm protecting myself so I can protect my neighbor, Luther has something to say about that too, and he kind of compares that to Samson, which is maybe not the most encouraging example given Samson's rather um, dubious characteristics. (laughs) Dr. Joel Bierman is professor of systematic theology at Concordia Seminary, St. Louis. He's author of an essay in Luther's Large Catechism with Annotations and Contemporary Applications. His chapter is titled The Fifth Commandment, Lawful Lethal Force. You'll find a link to this new resource at our website, issuesetc.org. Click Talk On Demand Archives. Dr. Bierman, thank you. My pleasure, as always. Thank you. Wednesday on Issues Etc., we'll discuss Roman Catholicism, the Fourth Commandment, and Venerating Mary with Dr. Stephen Parks. We'll talk with Dr. Charles Gieschen about the Second Commandment and the Divine Name and its media coverage of religion with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.